Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. <laughs> I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My guest today is Kyla Hassan of Delta Investment Management. We're going to talk compounders, value, uh, quality. Uh, it's a fascinating discussion right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit AcquiresFunds.com. I saw in your note that you said that you were, you were making a small change to your philosophy from value to quality. Mm. So what what prompted that? Yeah, so I think that was in uh, my annual report uh, about a year ago. Um, so a lot of or or maybe everything um, what I do is really driven from from my clients. Um, so I invest money for roughly forty individuals and families. Um, many of them live in California, um, and pay California taxes. And so their, their marginal rates can be pretty high. Um, so when I first started, um, I, you know, I think I looked, I like many other people probably kind of learned through Buffett. And, uh, when I was maybe 18, I read all his letters and, you know, at the time he owns railroads and banks and all those things. Um, so kind of when I was first starting the business for the first few years, uh, I owned, I think what you'd traditionally call value stocks. Um, and I'd try to own, I'd focus on quality and I tried to own good companies. Um, but you know, my portfolio had, if you go back to 2013, 14, 15, maybe, you know, I owned a lot of Berkshire, uh, I owned some railroads, banks, uh, at one point I owned some Exxon, which didn't go so well. Uh, luckily, stopped owning it. Um, but but I owned all these sorts of companies, you know. And then I said, well, you know, listen, if if I do it right, you know, I I can make okay money. Um, if I don't, uh, there's there's some real downside here. Um, and what really hurts for me is I, I report after tax returns to people. So, you know, let's say I get one right, and you know, I I own. JP Morgan and and when I buy it it's cheap and then after a few years it gets to what I think it's worth you know if, if I sell it and redeploy the proceeds somewhere else um, you know I, I might take a two or three percent hit to the IRR I just made or maybe a little more um, so I think recognizing one that hey maybe these things are are cheap for a reason um, and then two, if I'm looking on a on a real after tax return basis for my clients, um, it, it's really hard for me if I almost you know ever sell anything. So can I move into some companies that are a little better? Um, doesn't mean you know they're growing at thirty percent a year and traded at two percent free cash yield, but a little better, a little more durable, um, maybe a little less debt, a little less downside, uh, and if I can sort of accurately do that while not overpaying, um, then I think the results are going to be better and especially the after-tax results will should be better. How, how are you thinking about valuation in that context though? But you, you, you're, still, you're still, I mean, I, I've got your portfolio in front of me. It's still a reasonably traditional value portfolio. It's not, um, it's not at the super growthy end of, of value, which I talk to a lot of guys who've got a lot of compounders in there who are um, a lot of SaaS companies, which... Still, still falls within the definition of value the way that they're defining value. Just, it just depends on how you're treating that growth. And so I look mm -hmm. at yours, and it is, um, you know, this is a this is not an uncommon collection of of businesses. So you're still thinking about value in some context here. Just how are you doing it? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so for me, actual valuation, I think a lot of people make it complicated. I don't think it has to be super compl complicated. I just, it's cash in, cash out. Um, 
So for me, I really, really focus if I'm going to own anything, you know, what are the cash flow characteristics of this business? Um, assuming it's, you know, I most everything I own, um, I, you know, I hope, uh, but I plan for, for it to grow. Um, I don't own uh, sort of distressed situations or anything like that. Um, so if this company is going to grow, my first question is, well, how, you know, how much capital does it need to grow? Um, I, I think that's, you know, if you have a price to earnings multiple, it doesn't always tell you that story. And, you know, the bridge from price to earnings to free cash flow is uh, return on invested tangible capital is what I look at. Um, so, you know, I want to make sure, well, this is, you know, the P ratio is 13 and it's going to grow four or five percent. And so that should be good. Well, you know, what what's the return on tangible capital? How much of those earnings, if you're going to grow at that five percent, do you need to retain? Um, if the return on invested capital is low enough, it could be a lot. Uh, so, you know, most people will look at the CapEx needs of the business. Um, I look a lot at working capital. Uh, so, you know, Heiko is a name that I own. Um, they generate about 500 million pre-tax um, and their working capitals around that same number, about 500 million. Um, so if you think, well, Heiko is going to double its its revenue and, and earnings in five years. Well, you know you're going to need to retain 500 million dollars in working capital, most likely. Um, so, so I, I just I really try to track those cash flows. You know, if they're going to use leverage, will they increase it with earnings? All these things. Um, so from there, it's it's you know where do how much do I think the company can grow? Um, what portion of its earnings does it need to grow? And that gives you your free cash yield and an estimate for growth. And I, you know, just sort of add them up. Um, so if something, you know, is a, if I think it can grow over a long amount of time at 5% and, uh, you know, the P is 10, but at that growth, the free cash yield is seven, then I'm saying, well, I think I can make seven plus five. Um, I don't do super complicated modeling, um, but I tr do try to be really reasonable and, how I think about that long-term growth, um, make sure I'm not, uh, you know, being really aggressive with my assumptions, obviously, and try to be conservative like most other people. Um, so besides valuation, what, what's important? What's the, what's your process for assessing a company when you've, you first come across it, however you, however you find it, what's the, how do you think about it? Yeah. I, yeah. You know, it's, I would say I spend, if I'm looking at a company, I probably spend 95 plus percent of my time on the qualitative stuff. And then the numbers, uh, you know, I'm pretty quick with, um, like I said, no complicated models. Um, you know, I, I think it's hard. I think investing is really unique and really difficult um, in that there's not a lot of of what I would call, it's very hard to learn anything sort of positively. I think you can learn what doesn't work. I think it's it's really hard to just say, oh, well, you know, look at what's done well recently and I'm just going to do that. And, you know, as you know, that can blow up on you. Um, so I, I really just try to weed stuff out first and foremost. Um, so what I don't like uh, first of all, you can weed out a lot of companies by just, is that return on invested tangible capital, you know, high enough, uh, that they're actually creating value that, that weeds out a lot. Um, number two, you know, most companies that exist, um, you know, don't exist for a long time. Their profitability is competed away. Uh, uh, the returns on capital are competed away. Uh, and so, you know, there's got to be some sort of competitive advantage, obviously. Uh, that's the, Those are probably the two biggest ones. Um, and, you know, can I be comfortable that this business is going to exist and be better than it is in five or 10 or 20 years than it is now? Um, you know, it, it's a rare business that you can be confident in that, I think. Uh, truly confident. You can say whatever you want, but if you're being honest with yourself, um, 
that's a tough bar to clear. Um, and I usually look for that, uh, you know, I think, you know, who's buying their products and are they solely focused on price? Um, obviously you can have some price based moats, but, um, you know, any business where people are to say, I'm going to buy the cheapest one, uh, I kind of want to stay away from. Um, so, so those two things. And then assuming it checks that, uh, I, I think the three ways you can get yourself in trouble the most are lots of operating leverage. Um, and you know, there's plenty of good businesses that, um, their margins are going up over time because they have pricing power. What else? And I, I don't mean that. I mean, uh, like airlines, you know, uh, there's a lot of operating leverage in that business. And if your load factors go down just a bit, you're not profitable. Um, two companies we own trans diamond Heiko, uh, you know, in April, uh, I think, um, route passenger miles were down something like 90% across the globe. Uh, and those two businesses were still profitable. Um, EBITDA or maybe operating income was down. Sure. But, um, still positive, still free cash flow positive. So they can survive distress a lot better, uh, than, than something like an airline with a lot of operating leverage. Um, so I try to avoid, avoid that. Um, I personally try to avoid things that are too cyclical. I think it's really hard if you have a really cyclical business um, to, to have any idea what the earnings power is, uh, just honestly. Um, I was looking at uh, Vulcan Materials the other day, and, and that's not horribly cyclical, but but they, they did this deal in 2007. I think it was Florida Rock was was what they bought. And if you look, if you look at uh, the graph of aggregates demand from – I think it was 1960 or something up until 2007. It's up and to the right, and there's a couple little wiggles. Um, and so you can read the transcript for this for this acquisition, and management, uh, sorry, the analysts are getting on, and they're literally saying, hey, congratulations, this is a deal made in heaven. You guys are going to make so much money. And management's saying, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. And, you know, sure enough, uh, the next year, uh, aggregate demand was down, I don't know the number, maybe it was a third or something, but uh, volumes were down, EBITDA cratered. Uh, they had done a lot of debt to do the deal, um, and they were in some pretty serious trouble. Uh, so obviously that one sort of looked not too cyclical, but when you have cyclicality, uh, I just I find it there's risk, obviously, in, um, just in and of itself, but then it's hard to predict what's going to happen, I think. What, so, what drove so the cyclicality in that, in that instance? What, what, why was it, was it, was it home, <laughs> home building just stopped for a period? It, yeah. So they, they, it's a home building and construction. And then, um, there's some public sector construction as well. Um, and we went from really hot to not hot. Uh, and, uh, it was, it was a problem. Uh, so, uh, so yeah. And then I'd say the last thing, and this is sort of an obvious one is, is too much financial debt. Um, especially I would say we, I own a couple things that have some debt on them. Um, but if, if the debt's not structured, right, you know, there's some companies that need debt just to make it through a cycle or to operate that that's, I really try to avoid that. Um, some companies that use debt to sort of, you know, make, make their returns to the equity holders a little better. Um, I mostly avoid that unless I'm really, really sure that, that the company is going to be solid. Uh, and even then I want to make sure, um, that it's, you know, termed out and there's no new term maturities. Um, and usually that it's a good organic grower. Um, cause a good way, you know, if you, if you have good organic growth and you have some debt, um, you sort of, your debt to income ratio will drop over time. Uh, if your earnings go down, then you've got a problem. Uh, so, I do that in limited circumstances, but um, most of the time I'm, I'm trying to avoid things with too much financial leverage as well. So I like that approach. It's like, th these are just the ways that you can, these are the, the like the list of things that are bad for you. And that list just grows yeah. over time as you, uh, as you grow in this business. Um, but how did you get your start? How, how did you first sort of um, decide you wanted to be a value investor and what, what were you doing? 
Yeah, so... Not value investors. The- Sorry to tag you with that, Matt. You'll never recover from that. You're not a... Right. Yeah, yeah, hopefully nobody listens to this. Uh- <laughs> I'll bleep it out. I'll bleep it out. Uh, yeah, so I think I was 18. I was in high school, and we did one of those stock picking competitions. And uh, so that would have been uh, 2008 and maybe... The winter, sort you know, sort of February 2008, I think. Uh, I want to make sure I'm getting my dates right. But basically before... Good time to get started. Meltdown. Oh, before yeah, the yeah, meltdown. Yeah. Okay. Maybe it was 2007. I, you know, those that age math, you can be a year off sometimes. Uh, anyways, let's say 2007. Cause it, yeah, yeah, because it was right before things started to get bad. Um, so we did the little stock picking contest, and you have no idea how things work or what did you why pick? prices move. <sighs> Man, that's a good question. Can't remember. Doesn't, remember. doesn't matter. I do. I do remember. It was with a friend of mine, and uh, it was yeah. It must have been December, January, because he said, "Oh, let's buy Coke because because <laughs> the Super Bowl's in a couple months, and uh, demand should go that's up." So I was like, you know, I was like, I don't know a lot about stocks, but I don't think it works like that. <laughs> uh, but you know, I would probably bought a bunch of horrible companies besides that uh um so yeah that's i got interested in it and so then when i was in college um uh, i was a wrestler in college uh and i like to look at stocks uh probably to the detriment of my actual studies a little bit um so you know four years that you know so i'm reading all the buffett letters and um you know i would say sort of the canonical investing books, Philip Fisher and, you know, all, all that stuff. Um, and so I just sort of hopefully started, kept doing a little less bad over time. Um, I was in school for a fifth year and I was done wrestling at that point. And I said, hey, you know, it would be cool if I could do this, you know, professionally. Um, the wrestling. And so I, I say it again. <laughs> the wrestling. Uh, no, no, no. I said no to investing. You go to U- uh, go to the MMA, go to the UFC. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, I had enough. You'd be uh, retired by now. Yeah, wealthy beyond your wild streams. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, I said, you know, can I do the investing professionally? And so I got licensed, and I had a year where, you know, it wasn't wrestling, so I had some little more time. Um, and went out to some potential investors, friends and family, and um, I was sort of expecting, hey, maybe I can raise a little bit of money. Maybe I can. I had a place I could have maybe worked part time, um, and was very lucky and blessed um, that after the end of that year, I had enough to sort of operate. Um, you know, super low expenses and everything, but I, I had enough to to really start, um, and so that would have been twenty. Mm, well, I've been a year off, let's say 13, uh, and, um, 2012 or 2013 and have have been managing money like that since. So, um, it's not so much uh, a value philosophy or you don't want to, you don't want to, it's a, like, but it's inspired by Buffett. So it's like, how, how do you, how do you characterize what you're doing? So I would say, um, if I'm going to own something, what I really focus on is, you know, what is my estimate of sort of what it's worth now, but more importantly, what is the rate of change of intrinsic value growth? Um, you know, if you have clients paying a lot of taxes and you're going to try to hold things, you know, your return is going to be pretty close if you own it long enough to, the rate of change of intrinsic value. Um, so, so I would say I have kind of two buckets. Uh, one bucket is things I've owned at, I think what everybody would say are, well, hopefully, um, sort of reasonable prices. And, um, excuse me, uh, there's something in the business where I think the businesses can grow their intrinsic values at, um, I use my hurdle rate somewhere around maybe 10 or 12%. Um, at that rate or higher. Um, and I bought them maybe around what I think, you know, the, the kind of terminal value might be. So hopefully I should capture that growth. Um, those would be your, what people would call the compounders. Um, and then the second group is 
any very free cash generative company uh, that I think is just trades too cheap um, for one reason or another. Uh, and uh, and I, I really, what I want is not, you know, it trades at 13 times or whatever, and I think it's worth 16. And so, you know, in two years, if the gap closes, we'll make a good return. Uh, that, that doesn't really work for me because uh, of the taxes. Um, so for me, I, I look at it in these cases, I, I actually don't even, um, I don't even have a target valuation. Um, I, I very simply say, Hey, you know, if the, the, if the free cash yield is nine and I think it can grow at three, uh, then I'm going to make, you know, nine plus three, roughly 12. Um, and if I'm right, the valuation will probably go up because uh, that's sort of too high of a return, obviously, for compared to the market. Um, but I, I stopped. I used to say, oh, well, I'll take um, the free cash yield and I think it can grow. And then I'll add a little thing because, you know, the stock should recover back to my target. And what's what's tough about that, and, I, you know, listen, that's, that's how they do it in the textbooks. Uh, the problem is you're sort of assuming something different than the market is assuming if you know the free cash yields nine and you think it goes at three the market's saying like earnings are probably flat so if you're right then you know great if you're wrong uh not only do you not get the three but you don't get the rebound in the valuation either so so you've sort of you're in trouble twice um so i, I try not to do that anymore um and so i just yeah free cash plus the growth um and with with the types of companies I own that are pretty stable, um, you know, good market shares. Uh, you know, your math is a little different if you're growing thirty percent for now or something. But I, I don't own lots of stuff like that, so it's you can sort of use that simple formula. And so when you're when you're thinking about finding stuff, how, how are you tracking it down? Are you screening, or are you just reading what other smart guys on Twitter are doing? Are you reading Barron's or Wall Street Journal or how, what, how, what's the search process? Yeah, so dual pronged. Um, so one, if you go back to all that stuff I eliminate, it honestly, it does not leave a lot of companies. Um, so I guess right now I, I have a couple investments in energy. Um, that one's uh, maybe a good example of, of this. Um, I own two companies, one's Enterprise Products Partners and the other's Magellan Midstream. And I am not sure that there is another energy company I would invest in. I don't want to say at any price, but I'm going to say almost at any price. Um, there's lots of operating leverage with most of those companies. A lot of them, for some reason I don't understand, um, carry a lot of financial leverage. Uh, they're not managed particularly well. Um, but the incentive schemes are sort of all off. Um, and then, so it's you a know, wild I cutting like industry. Wildcat, yeah. wildcat managers, <laughs> wildcat equity. Not a lot of people getting paid on return on invested capital in oil and gas, uh, which you sort of need. Um, and, and then you know you have the services companies, and those aren't good businesses. And there's, as far as my eye goes, no competitive advantage there. So. So if that's your screen, you know, there's like two. And so I follow those ones, uh, you know. And so if you do that across the market, um, you can whittle away a lot. And so maybe there's 50 or 100 things that I follow. Um, so that's the first one, the first process. Um, and then, yeah, the second one is I've had, have gotten a uh, maybe 10 people on Twitter that I talk to a lot. Uh, and, you know, I, I try to be helpful in sharing my ideas with them um and they'll share the ideas with me uh you know bill brewster i've had a, a good friend he's um value investor three on twitter um pythia and jerry cap uh i'm you know i'm gonna forget a bunch now but uh but you know i talked to i talked to a bunch of people and uh science of hitting is a good one um so i talked to a bunch of people and um you know the, i think the good process there is is like somebody comes to you and say, hey, like I have this good idea. And, and so you look at it and make sure you sort of know what's going on and then you don't buy it. And then it goes down like 10% and they're like, wow, this is really cheap. And you're like, okay. And you're like, wait. And then 
you know, at some point it's going to go to another 10. They'll be like, Hey, can you look at this? Like, I have no idea what's happening. Something's clearly wrong, you know, and then, <laughs> and then you buy it. Uh, but, uh, but you know, it's, I think sharing ideas with like-minded investors is really important. And that's something I did not have up until a year or two ago. Uh, and it's been a very good change for me. So that's finding the ideas. What's the, what's the filtering validation process like? Well, if I could validate an idea, then that would be great. Uh, <laughs> uh, after you know, it goes up is, a year after it's gone up a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Most, most of the, you know, I think the problem is I have a good idea maybe every couple of years, but I have, I don't know, 10 bad ideas in that time. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. I mean, are um, you, are you, are you like, uh, you want to talk to management, you want to talk to customers, you want to talk to suppliers or are you financial statements, you know, industry reports that that's sort of what I mean, but how do you, how do you get comfortable with the idea? Yeah. Um, I think I, I'm not always a person or often that has to talk to management. Um, you know, I, I tend to own bigger established companies um, my process would be completely different if I was talking about smaller stuff or really growthy things. Um, so, so there's some semblance of this company's been around for a while. Has it seen a couple cycles um, and managed through them? Okay, that tells you. Listen, there, there's probably something here um, that matters and is positive. Um, and then on top of that, I, I like to. My biggest thing is I like to figure out why the customers are, are using their product, whatever it is, um, who's buying it and why. Um, and if I can figure that out, then I can feel pretty good um, because, you know, you're hoping to, you know, avoid those sort of, oh, well, like they sell at the cheapest price sort of situations or um, a host of other things. Um, but, but, you know, I, I would say if I can get a good moat, that's great. I would, I would probably, there's a lot of businesses out there that I think the moat to the extent that it exists is probably not what most people talk about, which is, Oh, well, there's almost no reason to, to use a competitor. Um, I think there's a lot of companies that are just, it's just like maybe an oligopoly, um, Maybe there's something that that just prevents a ton of competition, but from there on out, it's it's like you know we're one of three or four or five companies. Um, there's nothing that says we're going to do any better than the next company. It's just we have to have the right people and execute. Um, and I, I, that probably explains most businesses that are out there. Um, so, uh, and I'm that's actually that's something I, I can be comfortable with in the right circumstances. Um, providing they're competing like gentlemen rather than <laughs> brass yeah. knuckle brawl in a bar. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so, so yeah, that, that, that would be, that's my biggest thing. Um, who are the customers? Why are they buying? Do I have, you know, if it's just sort of an oligopoly situation, which most industries, I, well, good ones, I think are, um, you know, can I be confident that these are sort of the right people? to run things. Do I like their strategy? Those kinds of things. Um, let's talk about your portfolio a little bit. How do you think about uh, concentration, diversification? Let's start there and then I've got a few follow-up questions. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so this is something I've changed my tune on, well, even this year. Um, I've always been pretty concentrated uh, maybe very concentrated. Uh, most most of my clients own eight or nine things. They're not fully invested, so it's it's those eight or nine might be you know seventy percent of their money. Um, you know, I invest money for individuals. Um, they're you know most of the time you know if I do my job right, I'm going to be investing money for them for hopefully, you know, 30 to 60 years, a long time. Um, if you're taking too much risk over those kinds of time periods, I think you blow up. Um, and, and so, you know, I don't invest money for institutions. I don't invest money for people generally. 
that say, hey, I want you to go out and make the highest return you can. Um, most of the time, it's we have some money. We worked very hard to earn it and save it. Can you keep it and not lose it and then you know, hopefully grow it? Um, so and that, and that's that's sort of what feeds into that all the the quality business and avoiding all the bad things. Um, the first thing is is hey we, we you know we want to keep our money and and hopefully grow it. Um, and I think I've sort of seen probably more than I appreciated is is clients of mine that they don't want a ton of risk. Um, and by risk I mean you know the possibility of having significantly less of it, you know, after inflation over time. Um, after inflation off the text. That's a high bar. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Yeah. I mean, listen, I mean, if you took a cross section of uh, some Americans that had saved some money up and that had 40 or 50 years to invest and you said how many of them actually beat that bar, um, I think you'd be surprised at the results. And that's even in an environment that was really conducive to making good real returns. Um, so going forward, I, I think the environment's going to be a lot harder, uh, frankly. You know, just what, Why do you where, say that? Well, um, where bond yields are, uh, you know, if you have a 60-40 portfolio, uh, you know, on 40% of your money, you make whatever, zero or one. Um, stocks, I, I'm not one to say that you can really accurately predict the returns of stocks, but I'd feel pretty confident in saying that if you've got 10 or 20 years, uh, I don't think you're looking at double digit returns. Um, if rates are higher and especially real rates are higher, you could be looking at a fair amount of time of returns um, much lower than people are used to. Obviously the, the famous examples, 1965 and 1982, I think, I think the Dow was flat. You got some dividends, but you know, rates went from very low to very high. Um, that's always a risk. Uh, so, you know, if you just said you have 60% of your money making five or six and 40% of it making call it zero, um, three, three and a half percent returns, uh, you know, it's the math gets a little tough. Um, plus, plus, uh, inflation running a little bit higher than that. Sure. Yeah. That's a negative yeah, I think, number. I think, that's, I think, yeah, I think, I think for a long-term investor, assuming you own, you know, a bunch of cash generative businesses, I think that's your biggest risk. Um, especially from, well, you know, I think the, the market in the last little while has run up a little bit on, you know, real rates are negative. And so I think stocks are sort of worth a lot, uh, but if that changes, it could, it could be trouble. Um, so, so back to the, so at any rate, um, you know, they want to make a good return after tax and they don't want to have a lot of risk. You know, I, I talked to a couple of uh, my bigger clients in April, this April, uh, 2020, um, you know, the world was, the United States was shut down. Markets were going kind of haywire and due to their prudence, they had some extra money and were looking to deploy it. And so I, I just sat him down and said, Hey, here's what you own. Um, and the first things we talked about were, are they profitable and free cash flow positive, even in this locked on environment? And secondly, what does the debt look like? And when is any debt due? Who knows if we can roll it? Um, and they weren't so much, and you know, listen, other people have different mandates, but for me, they're not so much, hey, we, we need to make the S&P plus one. It's, we've got money to put to work and we wanna make sure that it becomes more money. Um, so, with all that being said, you say, hey, Kyler, you know, you own eight or nine things for clients. That seems a little silly. Uh, and I think there's some truth to that. Um, uh, everything that we own is on from a cash flow perspective has done okay this year. Haven't had any blowups. But, you know, if one big investment we had, something happened, we could be having quite a bad year. Um, so I think I've just, I think the world's very uncertain. I think business is very uncertain, um, and I need to do a better job of making sure that people are protected from sort of idiosyncratic risk. Um, what makes it hard is, uh, you know, going back to the tax thing is you have a bunch of things you've owned for a long time. You're going to have to pay some tax 
to diversify like that. So I'm kind of I'm thinking through that as we speak. Um, but I think the goal is to own a few more, a few more things. Do you uh, do you trim if something runs up a lot? Are you a, do you add if it if it comes back? How do you think about that sort of rebalancing? Is that something you do, or you you sort of buy it one time? When it gets to your valuation, you you kind of gone. Yeah, depends. Because um, that's hard with the tax question as well. Yes. Yeah. So, I think there are some certain cases where I generally do not trim or sell, and that is if I own something that has a, some optionality in it. Um, and so, what I mean by that is, if you own, you know, Berkshire Hathaway, the interest of value over the next 10 years, you know, might go up six or eight or 10 or maybe a little bit more percent, but it's not going to go up 15% a year. Uh, I mean, unless something insane happens, but, but generally it's big, uh, it's diversified. Um, they're so big that when they do deploy money these days, they're not going to get humongous IRRs on it. So there's not a lot of, uh, sort of risk to the upside on that. Um, I own and have owned a company, Constellation Software, for a while. Um, they deploy a lot of money into very small acquisitions at, at, at very good IRRs. Uh, probably last few years has been about 25% plus. Um, so as a holder of that company, you know, I, I have some expectations on you know, your biggest variable first is kind of organic growth and profitability of the base businesses, which... They're very sticky. Um, they're sort of low TAM, so it, it's hard for people to compete against them. They're very oligopolistic. Um, they're not the growthiest, um, but they're solid. Um, so then the second question is, well, how much can they deploy into M&A? Um, and maybe six or seven years ago, uh, well, not six or seven, a few years back, you know, they were doing $100, $150 million a year, um, at even sort of higher ROICs, and uh, it was like all their cash flow. And if you do the math, you get a lot bigger really quick. And so now this year, um, I think they're in the range of six to seven hundred million a year. Um, and so the optionality on that is: listen, if they can deploy most or all of their free cash into acquisitions over you know six years, twenty six percent ROIC, you know their earnings have just four xed. Um, so there's some good optionality there. If I think it's a little expensive, I'm going to be pretty hesitant to sell it. Um, you know, so far that's been a good idea. Could it be, will it always be a good idea? Probably not. But um, I think, I think there's a good chance that they continue to, to deploy a lot of money, a good rate of return. Uh, and that thing works for a long time. So, so it's gotta be really expensive for me to, to sell it. Um, if it runs up too much as a percentage of somebody's portfolio, sure, I could trim it. Um, but after tax, it, it can be harder. Um, but but that's how I look at the never sell idea. I, I, I don't want to get rid of optionality. I'm, you know, if I own, you know, a normal sort of value stock and it's past what I think and after tax, I think, you know, I can get a good price on it. Then I'll, I'll be a lot, a lot more susceptible to selling it. What do you think about Constellation? I've seen, I've seen them talking about the, the universe of companies that they can buy or the universe of businesses they could buy is, is huge and still growing. So that's not the, I don't think that the supply side of, you know, their, their acquisitions is the issue, but I, I, the number of people out there who've seen that that works and who now want to go and do that either as a search fund or, you know, there just seem to be a proliferation of constellation clones. How do they, how do they go in an environment where, there are a lot more, there's a lot more competition for the acquisitions. Yes, uh, that's a very good question. And I think the most important question, um, I actually saw their M&A process up close a couple of years ago with, with a, a I think I saw you tweet friend. about it. Yeah. Yeah. He was selling a software. That's a good business. story. Yeah. And so it's, I think it's various repeating. Uh, so he, I was talking to him one day and I sort of, knew he had a software business and he said, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm probably looking to sell it for um, a few reasons I won't get into, but, but anyway, I said, well, Hey, we're shareholders of this company. They, they buy small software companies like yours. 
uh, it was about a million dollars in pre-tax earnings, um, growing maybe mid single digits roughly. Um, and so, you know, I said, Hey, I, I can in introduce you to them. They might be interested. And so, um, I put them in touch and somebody reached out and they did some due diligence and uh, I might have the timing not exactly right, but I, but I think it was within two or three months uh, they had an all cash offer. It wasn't the highest, um, but an all cash offer. Uh, you know, continue working with the company, uh, and they said, "Well, it's not quite enough money." So they went out like, "Let's let's look for for other acquirers." And I I just so happened to have a, a good friend who had worked, he was an investment banker for software companies and he had just gone to business school. Uh, so, you know, they would have been well below um, the size that the company would have taken. Um, and so he sort of ran a sales process for them and it was, it was a nightmare. Uh, I think it took, I want to say it took two years to close. Really? And yeah, you know, a year into it, they were like, "This is this is horrible. This is a disaster. We're not going to close." And, and frankly, if they didn't close with who they did close with, I don't know if they could have kept going because you know, my, my friend, he's running the business and trying to run a sales process, and it was you know he's working two jobs. Um, you know, what's the odds of maybe the one strategic actually buying them? say it was, you know, 10% or something, you know, not high. Uh, so, you know, in, in this case, you have some survivorship bias and that the whole thing actually worked out and you had somebody that was willing to try to sell the company, which usually it's going to be hard to get somebody good and not terribly expensive at that, at that price. Uh, you had a couple other people interested that went through a lot of due diligence, due diligence and then dropped out. Uh, you had a strategic that worked, but if it didn't, you know, now what? Well, constellations there with again not the most money, uh, but a hard cash bid, um, and there were some other circumstances uh, that made it would have made it a little tougher, I think, for them to to go with constellation that wouldn't always be there. So, so I think when you look at that and you say, well, now how many of these things get sold in a year? It's it's some humongous number, and constellation sees really a high percentage of them so maybe their percent chance of getting a deal done is you know i don't know two or three percent but they look at a lot and hard cash offers and it's really hard to sell these things and the capital markets are really inefficient um i i think they've got a good runway uh, even with increased competition which there certainly is so your your biggest holding is transdime do you want to walk us through the the transdime opportunity sure uh, that's an interesting one. It's an interesting time for it. Uh, and I think, uh, it's, well, it, uh, it's no longer quite the largest, but it's close enough. Um, so let's see, I found out about that company from outsiders, the book, uh, it's in the first chapter. They talk about capital cities, uh, and Thorndike writes something effective and oh, Hey, by the way, there's this aerospace company in Cleveland that kind of looks like it. Um, so that's a company uh, that a lot of people skip over immediately. And the reasons are because there's a, there's a lot of debt. Uh, they run net leverage at six or six and a half times EBITDA. Um, so mo for, for a lot of people, that's just we're not going to own that. Um, and then secondly, they're very aggressive. Uh, they, they run that company to make money um, for their shareholders and themselves um so their pricing they everybody knows they charge higher prices than anybody else um and so people say well uh you know they've got uh, aftermarket arrows so certainly back up so they make parts oem parts uh for for airplanes uh and then they sell the same parts in the aftermarket um, to, you know, the airlines or, or there's some distributors. Um, so the FAA regulations are very stringent. Um, obviously you can't have a part fail in the air cause you know, something bad could happen at the plane. So there's a big focus on safety. And so 
once you get onto that airframe, um, you have the FAA certification to make that part. And in many cases, you're the your sole source. You're the only person that can make an aftermarket. So you have a lot of aftermarket pricing power. Um, Transime flexes it harder than anybody else does. Uh, and their margins are, are very, very high. So their EBITDA margins are, in a normal year, about 50%. Um, so, <laughs> you know, there's people say, well, this, this, the company's evil and, and they're going to, it's a zero and they're going to blow themselves up. Um, they've been around things since the early 90s. And, and um, I wouldn't know the number now, but, but they've compounded EBITDA by about 25% since then. Um, so there's been a lot of cash distributions as well. So your IRR on equities meaningfully higher. Um, and it's been public maybe since 2005 or 2006. Um, so all those things being said, it's, it's aggressive. They've got a really good business as long as they don't push it too hard, but they push hard. Um, aerospace is a big growth industry, you know, right now it's in a downturn, but over time, uh, the amount of miles that people have flown worldwide has gone up about 5% most every year back in, since maybe the 70s. Um, and it's projected to do so until maybe 2050. Um, so you've got, you know, if you go back to thing, you, you've got really good microeconomics. You've got a long-term growth story. You've got really good return on invested capital. Um, on the other side of that, you've got a lot of debt, and they push pricing hard. Um, so it's interesting. There's there's uh, somebody in practice uh, on Twitter, and, and they run they do like expert network interviews, um, and they've interviewed some people that are involved, have been involved with Transdime or, or know the space, and and the person that does interviews keeps asking because I think it's just like an interesting question to him. Um, so it turns out that lots of aerospace contracts. Um, if you make a part OEM, your customer who might make um, the bigger part or could be Boeing, in most aerospace contracts, they write in, hey, we, you know, we get to sell for the first little while, we get to sell the aftermarket parts, um, and they sell them at higher prices. Uh, so Transdime, they sort of go in and they say, well, we're going to own our own aftermarket. Um, and so part of the price increases that you see are, are just from that, because as an outside investor, you just see, well, um, what are the margins went up, you know, what did they do? Um, so, so they capture some of that. And then they also, in some specific cases, uh, you know, where, where there's a little competition, they'll take the prices of the part itself up as well. Um, and so they'll, they'll take them up the least on, uh, sort of planes that are still in production. Um, and they'll take them up a lot more on planes that are out of production and it costs a lot to make this part because you might make one part every few years and the volumes are really low and you need the part to fly. So, you know, they'll flex the pricing power where they have it. Um, but really, I think that was, he did some really good work on that because people just thought, well, they're doubling and tripling their prices. And it's like, well, really, no, they're, they're getting, the aftermarket pricing from some of the OEMs, which you know is another sort of worry, can they keep doing that? Uh, but two, you know, then customers aren't seeing like you know three, four, five x pricing on their parts. Um, so the model works pretty well. Um, and then on top of that, on top of all that, so now you have a lot of good things going for you: the the growth and the, the return on capital and um, the microeconomics. They are also very good and lean operators. Um, so they remind me uh, a, a decent amount of Danaher. Um, Danaher is, of course, maybe the best run industrial company in America or the world. They're, they're great. Uh, they come in and they invest where they need to for growth. Um, they take cost out. Um, so Transdime, you know, a lot of these companies that they buy, uh, there's a lot of sort of mom and pop uh, aerospace companies. Uh, and as you can imagine, um, if you have a monopoly, you don't always run things the leanest. Uh, so 
there's a lot of public companies that aren't exactly run lean and well like you'd hope. So so they can go in and take EBITDA margins from, you know, they'll buy something and they'll take EBITDA margins from, I mean, sometimes 15% up to their normal 50. And so part of that is on price, but then a lot of it is they can take cost out and they can run their inventory linear, which which helps on cost as well. Um, and so they're just really well managed and, and they're close to their customers. And so they know there was a, um, they know places where, hey, we've, we've got competition, we've, we've got to run this well, and we can't take up price. And I think they know, hey, in this specific part, we're the only, by the, make, the only person that makes it and we have a more pricing power. So I think they price to the market very well. And so when you add all this up, you know, you, you've got a good base business. You can do acquisitions where, you know, you buy something, they usually pay 10 or 12 times EBITDA, and after they get their improvements through, now they've paid four to six. Uh, you create a lot of value like that, and then especially at the very end, they have six turns of leverage. Uh, so when it all comes together, you can grow the intrinsic value very quickly. Um, so your worry is obviously, well, their aerospace market turns down, and, and they've shown, well, you know, their last quarter EBITDA is down 35% when, again, passenger miles were down 90 or, or for the quarter, maybe it was 80. I'm not quite sure. Um, but positive EBITDA, positive free cash, poor working capital. And their debt is nice and termed out, and they don't, you know, they don't have to pay anything back till 2024. Um, so I think that's sort of shown people. People are always saying, well, transams can be a zero. Uh, I think there's a lot of other aerospace companies that are going to be in trouble before Transdime is, um, and you know it's the micro, right? I, I think as an investor, I really try to focus on the microeconomics because that's what drives value. Um, and so you could have an aerospace company with a little bit of debt, uh, but really tough microeconomics, and the stocks are down, you know, ninety five percent this year, like like you sort of imagine. So it's an interesting company, um, and it's been a long term winner, and see how it goes. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. Uh, Kyla, we're coming up on time. Uh, if folks want to follow along with what you're doing or get in contact with you, what's the best way of doing that? Uh, I'm on Twitter, uh, maybe too much, uh, <laughs> Tyler Hassan. Uh, so my my direct messages are open. So if you want to if you want to contact me there, send me a direct message. Uh, my email address is Kyler at HassanInvestments.com. Uh, and you can reach me there as well. And you have a site, HassanInvestments.com? Uh, I have a blog now that was, uh, an old sort of long story, uh, concentratedcompounding.com. I have it, uh, I haven't written on it in a while, but it's there. So I have some old annual reports on there. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you email me, I can also send you anything you want to read to. Uh, that's great. Uh, Kyla Hassan, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs>